Hey guys, Pastor Jurgen here. I'm so glad you're tuning into one of our powerful messages that is guaranteed to absolutely elevate your life to another level. At Awaken, we only want to preach fresh, real, powerful to help you grow stronger in your walk with God, develop your faith so you can take more territory. I'm praying that God blesses you and enriches your soul as you listen to this amazing word from God. God bless you. And it struck me on the way in that today I want to talk a little bit about the difference between happy and joy. That, that happy is, is a really great feeling. But joy is not about the lift. Joy is about the roots. So you guys can sit down. The message today is called The Strength of Joy. Because I don't, I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up in a culture that told me that authentic joy, real joy, actually empowers you to act. It actually empowers you to face adversity. That joy is the antidote to fear, not be less afraid. When we, when we hear the Bible giving us those, those inspiring words like be not afraid or don't fear, it's not saying don't feel fear. It's saying don't be fear. Don't embody fear. Don't give fear the steering wheel. Don't become identified with your fear. Fear is going to be in the process for you. It's saying, give the steering wheel to something else. And last week, we were celebrating my daughter's 10th birthday. Samantha Ellen is now, actually, she'll be 10 tomorrow. Uh, But nobody wants to celebrate your birthday two days after Thanksgiving or four days after Thanksgiving. (laughs) So we always celebrate a little bit early. And I think that means that there are no single-digit human beings in my household. We are all double-digit human beings now. There's a little bit of sadness. There's a little bit of like, oh, And then I thought, everybody in this house goes to the bathroom all by themselves. That's, that's happiness. But it was one of those things, because I left on Saturday morning, and my house looked like my home, and then I came back, and it looked like um, a Disney movie had just thrown up in my living room. And I said, whoa, what happened? And she said, the balloons got delivered. I'm like, how many balloons you got to buy before they'll deliver them to your house? It's a lot, I'll tell you. And I walked in, there's balloons everywhere, and I, I was looking at it, I was like, man, that's what happiness looks like. Because happiness is not a bad thing, happiness is a really good thing. Happiness is a feeling. Happiness is a feeling that happens to us. Happiness is the emotional byproduct of things going our way. So when we have a celebration, when we have a birthday party, or when we welcome you know, the birth of a new baby, or we get a promotion, We go and we get balloons because balloons are colorful and they're bouncy and they feel happy. (laughs) The problem with happiness, and it's a good thing, is the same as the the problem with balloons. These are the balloons from my my daughter's birthday party last week. Oh, I didn't realize that was gonna take the room down. (laughs) It's okay, we can buy more balloons. But you give those balloons like six or seven days, and they're not as inspiring. And so what happens when my peace in God or my reassurance or my joy 
to use Nehemiah's word. What happens if it's based on the bounce? It's based on the circumstances. Man, like, how you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing really good. We just, business is going great. The girls are really healthy. They're doing great in school. Marriage feels really great. Everything's, everything's good. I'm, I'm awesome. And then you have a day that doesn't go so good. And there's a moment where, um, there's a moment where Paul writes a letter to the Philippians, which is the church in Philippi, if you didn't know. He writes the letter to the church in Philippi, which is his church. He started it. It's his baby. The church in Philippi did not exist before Paul traveled through Macedonia, which is the area, and preached the gospel, the good news that God loves you. The people in Macedonia, the people in Philippines, and not the Philippines, the people in Philippi, you say they are pagan people. They don't know who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are. They, they don't know who Yahweh is. They don't have an idea of a God who's motivated by love. They have an idea of gods who are motivated by gratification, right? If rain doesn't come, it's because, oh, you didn't please the right God. If things happen in your life that are bad, it's because, oh, the God is angry with you and you have to appease them. And then Paul comes through with the gospel, he says, no, there's this other way to connect with God. There's a God who loves you as you are right now, who wants your good. He actually has a plan for your life. He loves you so much that he actually took the cost of your sin. He actually took the cost of your fear. He took the cost of your betrayal and your, your lack of integrity, your, all the ugly. And he said, I'm going to pay that price for you. And he sent his son to face the most gruesome death that the Roman Empire could think of because he wanted to reconcile heart relationship with you. And Paul goes through this pagan area and churches are born. And one of them, one of the, one of the ones that, that he says explicitly is so dear to his heart is the church in Philippians. And something that's, that's really incredible to me about this letter is like, just think, man, you're this young church. You've only existed for a couple of years. And all other religious kind of reference points that you have are based on wrath and pleasure. Wrath is when you do bad. Pleasure is when you do good. So you seek oh, yeah. pleasure. And then John comes through, or Paul comes through, and from prison, yeah. from death row, he writes the happiest book of the Bible. He writes the most joyful book of the Bible. I said, I'm pretty sure, I, I, don't, I don't know for a fact. I think that the highest rejoice to word count ratio in the Bible is the book of Philippians, which was written by a man in prison on death row. Wow. And there's this really powerful passage right at the end that really reframes. It just, it shatters like our cultural idea of the word joy, which is the cultural idea is like the joy that comes on your coffee cup and on your bath products. Joy is, the, joy is the thing that you purchase, or it's the thing that comes and goes. When the world talks about joy, it's usually talking about happiness, which is not bad, but it's not joy. It's not peace. And he gives this completely new radical way of thinking about joy. In Philippians 4, this is the very end of the, of the letter. And so it's like when I think about the end of a letter, when I think about the end of a book, I think about, okay, I'm about to, I'm about to be done. I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish my words. So if you get nothing else out of this letter, 
That's what I'm gonna, I'm gonna reframe that thing. I'm gonna restate that thing at the end. And this is what he says in his final remarks. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And you think, how powerful would that be? If your uncle, who you knew was innocent, wrote you a letter from death row that said, I just want you to know, no matter what you're going through, I want you to have joy. That's, that's the reality of the Philippians as they read this letter, that Paul, their spiritual dad, is facing death. Rejoice in the, world, in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. And that word rejoice is the word kara. Everybody say kara. It comes from the root word kario. It's the expressive form. So if kario is the word joy, kario uh, is the word joy, kara is the word to rejoice or to express joy. That word literally means awareness of grace. It's a verb that means to be aware of grace. Another translation of it means to lean in to grace. And so he's, he opens this letter from, from death row and he says, Rejoice always. Remember to lean in to grace. Be aware of how good God's grace is because it will carry you through literally anything. When we think about, when we think about circumstances going badly and it steals us of our joy and now we're in a bad mood and we're stressed out and we're anxious, it's because we were looking to the balance, we are looking to the conditions, to the outcomes, to the circumstances to do something that only the root system, Come on. Wow. only the root system can do, yeah. is that we need to root ourselves in grace. We need to root ourselves in the goodness of the gospel. He goes on and he says, I promise I'll read this more quickly. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And I always, I stop, I think of that man. We cannot give, we cannot give peace to another person that we don't have. So when he says rejoice always, remember to root yourself, lean in to grace because the gentleness that comes from that peace that will guard your mind, the gentleness, that, the joy that comes from that is actually going to spill out to other people. It will be evident to other people. And recently my daughter lost a tooth and she was stressed about it. You guys aren't going to like me in just a second. Because that's the, that's the proper response. Aw. And she was worried about it. And she had been talking about this loose tooth for a really long time. And I'm starting, like, you can actually see the, the next tooth, like, coming up. And you're like, girl, this is, this is overdue. And so I'm saying we, we're going to have to... We're going to have to do an extraction here at home. And she was not all about it. And she said she was really worried. And I, I could just, like, when, in a moment like this where I look back, like, I could see my own progression where I'm trying to offer her false calm. Because the first thing I say is, oh, don't worry about it, honey. Do you know there's never been a person in history that was reassured by the words, don't worry about it? That never helps. <laughs> and so she's like, okay, what are you going to do? How's it going to work? And we talk about it. And she goes back to her worry. I was like, honey, I told you already, there's nothing to worry about. And now I'm feeling tense and my voice is a little stretched. And then we keep talking about it. And now I'm like, I'm done. Like, I'm just over this. We've been talking about this for 45 minutes. The tooth is going to take 11 seconds to get it out of your mouth. Like, I have already told you, and I am trying to use frustration to tell her to calm down. <laughs> oh, there's nothing more indicting than the mirror when you're just like, wow. And my wife, who's amazing, she comes in and she says, do you need a break, honey? It's going to be okay. 
But we cannot give peace. We cannot offer peace to another person that we don't have. We, it starts with our peace, and then it becomes evident to all. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, thanksgiving, present your request to God. So he's actually teaching us the how-to. He's actually teaching you what to do. He says, when anxiety rises up, redirect. Be anxious about nothing in every situation, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And there's that really famous that really famous sentence where he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, think about these things. What he's teaching us is this skill that we do not learn in our culture. Unless you had some amazing parents who taught you to do this, the skill is redirection. That there's a very specific muscle that unless you're taught to do it, it actually is counterintuitive to our brain's self-preservation. Because what your brain does, your brain has a, has a, um, a preference between positive and negative data. Did you know that? It actually prefers negative data. I don't mean that it likes negative data. I mean that it privileges negative data above positive data at a factor of somewhere around seven to one. Meaning, what that means is, somebody can tell me, ooh, you might want to work on that, Brian, one time. And then the next seven things that come out of their mouth could be, but this is amazing, and this is amazing, and this is amazing, and this is amazing. And the thing I will walk away with is, oh, they don't think it was good enough. We privilege negative data, meaning we prioritize it. Our brain, as a, as a computer, prioritizes negative data about seven to one. And what he's saying, you have to learn the skill of redirection. When you see anxiety activate in your system, when you see fear, when you see frustration, you need to train your mind to redirect it. And what is the criteria we're looking for? He says literally anything that comes from God is gonna ground you back into grace. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, just bring your attention because feelings follow focus. And the tough thing about that, the tough thing about it, they don't follow focus immediately. They follow, they follow focus habitually. So when my redirection, my focus becomes God's goodness as a habit, my emotions follow the focus. But when it becomes the exception and I'm trying to hype myself up and things are going really hard and people are asking like, man, how you doing, Brian? I'm like, I'm doing really awesome. Things, things at work have not been good, but I, it's Sunday morning and you're supposed to be in a good mood. So I'm like, I'm fine. Everything's good. Hallelujah. Not today, Jesus. And I'm trying to prop up. I'm trying to prop up my happy. The problem with it is I don't believe in. The problem with propping up your happy is that it's not real to you. So I can't give that to somebody else. Where was I? Redirection. Okay. So if we jump down, he says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. So there is a secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And that is so helpful that he says that because just the fact that he says, I've learned the secret means there's a secret, means there's a technique, a skill. There's a muscle that's counterintuitive. It's not instinctual. Your brain is gonna privilege the negative data. It's going to focus on what it thinks will keep it safe, which is it's gonna focus on the danger. But he's saying you have to train your mind, there's a secret. And then he gives you what the secret is. The secret is to remind myself, I can do all things. Everybody say, all things. All things through him who strengthens me. And guys, this is so important. This is not the power of positive thinking. 
this is the power of proper rooting. This is the power of where is my root system? Do I root my peace and my joy in my circumstances or do I root them in Kara? Do I root them in leaning towards grace? I worked with this amazing young woman a few years ago who uh, really impacted me. Her story has stuck with me because I think partially because the way she was treated made me mad and partially because just the redemption. Basically, this woman came to me and she was going through panic attacks and she was like 27, 28 years old. She'd been married a few years and she was going through these panic attacks. And I said, okay, tell me about, tell me about the onset. Tell me where these panic attacks came from. And she said, well, I've probably always had some, some low-level anxiety. I've, I've lived with that. That's been normal to me, but I've never had this before. And basically, six, five, six months before this, she said, I got what felt like a sinus infection. So she went to a specialist, an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And this doctor really, really rapid. She's like, I didn't feel like he was listening to me. I didn't feel like uh, that I, I, I got to speak into the treatment plan at all. He just, he just diagnosed me, and then he gave me a prescription for, for fluoro quinolone. Everybody say fluoroquinolone. You actually don't need to remember that. It's just a really hard word, and I wanted to slow down and say it because I couldn't say it in first service. He gave me this prescription. If you're not familiar with what that is, I wasn't, so I had to look it up. Fluoroquinolone is an incredibly powerful antibiotic. So most of the antibiotics that we take when we go to the doctor are what we call narrow-spectrum antibiotics, meaning they only kill certain things. This is what's called a bactericide. It kills, it's flat earth. It's scorched earth antibiotics. And really flippantly, this doctor says, here, take this. And then she learns afterwards, as this pain in her body and this pain in her skin start to happen, that not uncommonly, I don't know how frequent, so don't panic, not uncommonly, people experience nerve damage from this very, very powerful antibiotic. And then she came to me and she said, as soon as the pain started, she started to get these really scary electrical impulses going up and down her neck. She just felt like there was electricity going up and down her neck. And then the panic set in. And she went back to the doctor and the doctor basically said, yes, this might be permanent. I can give you pain medication. And she wasn't helped by that either. That did not feel helpful to her. So she came to me and she's having these panics. Like, okay, the first thing we need to do, we need to ground ourselves in what's true. What we know for, tr- for, for sure is that God designed your nervous system to heal. He designed it to heal itself. It knows what to do. All we do when we go to the doctor and, and there's an infection in our arm, there's a cut that got infected. All he does is he kills the infection. The arm heals itself. God built healing into our DNA. So we started there and we said, okay, what we're going to do is going to feel a little counterintuitive. And I told Linda, what I want you to do is I want you to start to welcome. I want you to welcome these symptoms. When, when you feel the pain in your skin, when you feel those electrical impulses, I want you to say, you are welcome. Welcome. I trust that you are what it feels like for my nervous system to work this out. Because we did not have a pill to cure this. In fact, the medical doctor said, I can mute it for you. I can give you pain medication, but it's just fingers crossed. I hope it goes away. And so I gave her a practice, something called the thought alignment, which is a practice I actually taught last week at San Marcos. If, if you're interested in that, it's Awaken Church is amazing. They actually, um, they made it a downloadable file, the file that I use in my practice. So if you, if you text alignment to their text message, what is it? 55525, you'll actually get this document. So I gave her this document and said, okay, I want you to start to train your mind because the problem here actually is not the symptom. 
The symptom is the discomfort. The symptom is that electrical impulse. The problem here is what your brain thinks it means. Your brain thinks that this means catastrophic outcome. It means permanent damage. It means pain. It means something's gone wrong. It means you're all alone. It means you are never going to heal. That's the coding. That's the panic that we're having. And so we actually let the nervous system do its thing. We obviously cover it in prayer, but we redirected our attention towards the emotional conditions. And what it illustrates is something that I think we've kind of been robbed of in our culture. And it was actually, it was the first time I ever realized that culture has hijacked the word hope. They've taken it from us and they've rebranded it to mean something that it was never meant to mean. I was actually in a supervision meeting as a student therapist. When you're a student therapist, you're, you're still in graduate school and you're kind of earning, you're earning your credit. You're earning, you're proving yourself that you're safe with humans, right? And so before they let you wreak havoc on the general public, they put you in these little special clinics where they're student therapists and people know I'm walking into a student therapist. So you're like, it's like a little bit safer. And I was in one of these treatment teams where the supervisor was processing, and my supervisor, her name was Laura, she's a really, really sweet lady. Laura is a Buddhist. And so her way of orienting in the world is a way that orients without God. And so Buddhism is a way of how do I cultivate peace without a loving creator? How do I cultivate peace if I'm all alone in the universe. And one of the things she said that was so interesting to me is somebody was talking about their client was looking for hope and, she, and Laura said, oh, you got to really be careful when hope comes up in your therapy room because hope is a trap. I was like, okay, pause. I, I need you to tell me what you mean by that, Laura. And what she said was, hope is conditional reassurance. Hope is I will be okay if. I hope the relationship survives. I hope my kid is okay. I hope the circumstances that I'm looking for come my way. And if God's grace is not true, then Laura is right. But God's grace permeates every cell in your body. And we know that hope in the Bible actually means something very different. Hope in the Bible, and this is important, hope in the Bible is the ability to access an emotional reality now even before it's a physical reality in the world. It's the ability to say, yes, my circumstances haven't worked themselves out yet, but I know that I serve a mighty God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and I know he's going to provide. I don't know how he's going to provide, but I know he's going to provide. I don't know how he's going to come through with the healing, but I know because I know who God is, because his love and the transformation in my life is real. And so hope is a very, very different thing when you ground it and rooted in the grace of God. I remember like when your kids are little and they don't understand that sound travels, which is really helpful. <laughs> On Christmas morning, they think they're being so sly. They would actually walk to our bedroom door and close it super loud <laughs> so that we wouldn't know they were going downstairs to infiltrate Christmas morning. They were up at like 4.30 in the morning. My kids, I mean, my kids always have been like waking before between 5 and 6 a.m. So um, I really know what joy that's rooted in the grace of God feels like. But that excitement, they don't know what's downstairs, but they cannot contain themselves. That emotional reality about the physical reality that they have not yet accessed, that's 
what hope is. It is, I can't see it yet, but I'm already allowing myself to feel its truth. And when you go to, when you go to somebody who is able to hold the faith and the space that you need, they say, man, I feel weary, I feel scared, and I know that I need to have faith for this prayer. I know that I need to trust God for these things, but I feel too weak. And you go to somebody else, the thing that allows them to hold that faith for you is the hope that they're already able to access now. Amen? Does that make sense? There's another moment in the Old Testament where we see this really rare glimpse of what it looks like to leverage joy. And in the book of Nehemiah, which is not the book I would have expected to see this in, in the book of Nehemiah, which is the story of Israel rebuilding the wall after coming back from exile. If you're not familiar, Ezra and Nehemiah are two books, and they're two Old Testament prophet books, and they're actually originally written as one book because they're one history. They're the history of the Israel nation coming back from Persian exile, right? So the, the Persian empire drove them into exile. They got, they got uh, spread out all over Macedonia, all over Persia. And then Israel repents. They, they turn their back on God. It's something you read a lot in the Old Testament. All you like Bible in a year people, you probably like, man, how many times have I read, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord? I feel like this is like 20 or 30 times now. It's a thing, which is, it's frustrating, but it's also like, okay, permission. Okay, Brian did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, Israel did it too. They're still chosen. All right, there might be hope for me. They do evil. There's consequences. And God has brought them back from exile. So they're back in the promised land. But the thing that, that when I was studying, the thing that really stood out to me is something that hadn't hit me before. was the reality is that, okay, they actually came back from exile something between 50 and 70 years ago, before the book of Nehemiah is written. They came back from exile, but they actually brought exile back with them because they were in exile for a couple of generations. So the people who are now living in Israel, the, the moms and dad, the kids, those are people who have never known what it looks like to live as God's chosen people, to live on the promised land, their inheritance as God's chosen people. So they go back and the first thing they do, God sends Ezra and they rebuild the temple. I think it's so interesting. The Persian empire wasn't intimidated by the people of God going home. They said, no, okay, you can, you can, you've, been, you've been out of your, you've been displaced for 120, 130 years, you can go home. The empire wasn't intimidated by them rebuilding their temple. It weren't, that didn't scare them. But as soon as they started to rebuild the wall, it happened several times in that 70-year period. They had made many attempts before Nehemiah to rebuild the wall, and every single time, one of the surrounding cultures, one of the surrounding civilizations would come in and destroy it. Empire said, no, 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 you don't, you don't get to rebuild a wall. You don't get to rebuild the symbol of your sovereignty, the symbol of God's protection. We don't want you thinking like God's chosen people. You can, you can behave like them. You can have your rituals. You can have your building. But you don't get to see yourself as separate, your empire, and we need you to know that. There's this story from 400 AD. In, uh, in this, in, it's, it's during the Byzantine Empire. It actually takes place in what is now Constantinople. And there was an emperor, a Byzantine emperor. is the emperor of the East, a guy named Arcadius, who was a young guy. He was actually, at the, time, at the time that this happened, he was like 15 years old, feeling a little big for his britches. And the local archbishop and Arcadia's wife, the empress, 
Alia, Alia, something like that, they get into a feud, and Emperor Arcadia decides, I'm going to put a statue of my wife in your church. I'm going to put a statue of my wife in your temple. And they says this to Archbishop John, I'm only going to say this once, because Chrysostom, Emperor, or uh, Archbishop John Chrysostom, also known as Bishop John. So, <laughs> Bishop John says, absolutely not. It's helpful to understand that this temple, the temple in Constantinople in 400 AD, is, is a church that actually has been rebuilt. It's called, um, I'm going to find it, Hagia Sophia, which means beautiful wisdom. It was actually one of the wonders of the ancient world, gorgeous church. It was considered like one of the crown jewels of the city. So you think, what would it have felt like to be a Christian, a follower of Christ? This is a fledgling this is a new faith. It's only been around for like 400 years. And you have this gorgeous, overwhelming temple. Well, when Bishop John says no to Arcadius, Arcadius actually banishes him from the area. And he banishes, he sends him to another country, what is um, now neighboring Turkey. And the people find out about this. And the night before, the, art, the emperor is about to install this statue an idol of his wife in their temple. The people, the congregation, burned their own church to the ground because the emperor miscalculated. He thought you believed in a temple. He thought you believed in a building. He thought you believed in this display of power, right? This, this crown jewel, this beautiful thing. He thought your faith was there. And if I can just move, if I can just sneak into your ritual, I'll take over your faith and say, oh, no, no, no. We believe in something much bigger than this building. And we will rather see our church burn to the ground than see idolatry enter our kingdom. And I think, man, if there was ever an awakened move in ancient Byzantine, I was like, man, I wonder, I wonder if like Pastor Leanne or Pastor Matisius has like Byzantine ancestry. <laughs> they might. The thing that's so beautiful is, is we, right now, we're looking at Israel in this moment in Nehemiah's book. We're looking at Israel. They've lost that lion heart. They've lost their nerve. So they came back from exile, but they brought exile back with them. They're still, they're trying not to disrupt the empire. They're trying not to make waves. They're, trying, they're just trying to figure out, like, how do I do life and keep my head down? And Nehemiah comes back, and he inspires them. They take up swords. They actually, like, you've probably heard the story. They're building the wall with a sword in their other hand. He, he gives them back that lion heart. Actually, Nehemiah's name means comforter. So he comes back with the power of the Holy Spirit. And in 52 days, Israel rebuilds a wall that they attempted to build and couldn't for 70 years. It's unbelievable. This moment is really powerful. This moment is the first time the nation of Israel has stood inside the protection of their completed wall. It's the first time that this generation of Israelites have ever felt what it's like to stand inside the sovereign land of God's chosen people. And they're hearing the word of God read for the first time. And the people of Israel just start weeping. They just break down because as they're hearing God's word for the first time, they hear the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And then they're confronted, right? They're confronted with their unfaithfulness. And they, in the, the pain of that disparity, their hearts break and they just begin to weep. And Nehemiah says a really strange thing to them. 
Because Nehemiah knows that they're in a day where we don't have, we don't actually have time to mourn yet. We just made empire angry. We need our lion heart right now. And so in chapter 8, verse 9, as the people are weeping, then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra, Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people all had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Israel has never heard these words before. And Nehemiah continues, he said, go and celebrate with the feast of rich foods, with sweet drink, and share gifts of food with the people who have nothing. This is a sacred day before the Lord. Do not be dejected or sad. And I first read that, and I'm like, that is so confusing. Israel is doing a holy thing. They're listening to God's perfect word, and they're being confronted with the way that they have dishonored God, and they're brokenhearted, and they're weeping. And Nehemiah, knowing we need to be strong today. We, this is, we, don't have the, we don't have the luxury of grieving today. He says, today, we are, today we're actually going to rally. Today we're going to celebrate. And he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. If I was going to say it different. He says, okay, today, because we're facing, we're facing very real danger, right? We, we need to be rooted in God's grace. We need to lean in today. So what I need you to do, I need you to actually let yourselves experience a joy you do not yet deserve. I need you to let yourselves experience a joy that you have not earned because that joy is going to strengthen you. I need you to lean into grace. Is he saying, don't be sad? Like, as in, don't feel sadness? No, that, that actually, they make space for that grief just two chapters later. Just, just a little bit after this, they go through a time of confession. But today is a day where we're facing danger. Today is a day where we're facing very real threat. And he said, today we need strength. And what I need you to do is I need you to rejoice. I need you to teach your heart that it is a safe thing, even when conditions don't feel good, even when you're looking around the wall and you see enemies, even when you're looking at the mirror and you see failure, you see hidden shame. Do we need to confront the darkness? Absolutely. But we need to know that we are not actually strengthened to go through that darkness if we try and go through it without joy. And so what God wants us to do is he wants us to learn a lesson that's a little bit countercultural to us because we tend to have two relationships, one of two relationships with our emotion. The first one is that our emotion determines reality right? I get overwhelmed. I feel sad. I feel alone. I feel unloved. And I feel like that's the only feeling I have access to right now. I'm not able to access another reality. I just have to trust that until my circumstances change, this is how I feel. The other relationship that we have with our emotions is we don't trust it at all. And we try and just disown it. I say, I'm not going to let emotions run my life. I saw, I saw a meme from, um, from a, a Christian that said, the devil wants you to listen to your emotions, but God wants you to listen to truth. And I'm like, yes, that is half true. There are times when you're feeling fear and the devil really wants you to lean into fear. And there are times when you are feeling 
not good enough, and God wants you to lean into grace. That's true. But God gave you your emotional world. God gave you your heart. He gave you joy. He gave you boldness. He gave you sadness. He gave you frustration. He gave you those things because they reveal to us the way that we are coding the world around us. They reveal to us what I believe and feel is true. What Nehemiah is saying is, you don't need to disown that. You don't need to treat that like it's dangerous. It also doesn't have to run your life. You can actually redirect your attention and root yourself in that a mighty God, a God much bigger than the Persian empire is on our side. And today we need to celebrate because we need to find our backbone. We need to walk in boldness. We need to believe God for amazing things. We need to reclaim our identity as God's chosen people. And when you accept Jesus into your heart, the first thing he's gonna do is he's gonna rebuild the temple. He's gonna make space for the Holy Spirit. The second thing that God is gonna wanna do in your heart is he's gonna rebuild your identity. He wants to say, okay, yes, you are carrying shame. You have been places that you wish you had never gone, absolutely. You have made mistakes with very real consequences, yes. We can make space to grieve all of that. I also need you to do something that might feel unnatural, and I need you to pick up joy. I need you to let yourself access the emotional reality of God's grace. I need you to root yourself in hope. Amen, does that make sense? Because I wanna just pray for you. So can you guys close your eyes? And a moment like this, I know as I'm preparing for the, First, second, and service, and second service. As I'm, I'm walking through this scripture, I think, man, I can see places in my own life that are not rooted in joy. I can see places in my own life where I get overwhelmed, where anxiety creeps up, frustration creeps up, and I slip into that false dichotomy. I either let the emotion, I let the feeling run the show, or I disown it like it's dangerous. And we have a moment like this. God wants us to welcome that full spectrum, that whole emotional, he wants you to welcome that whole thing to the table and just reassure that part of your heart that's scared. He said, it's okay, you can be scared. I'm also gonna grip and hold on to God. That part of you that, that feels anger, that part of you that feels alone, you say, okay, you're allowed to feel alone. You're allowed to seat at the table. We're also gonna leverage the fact that God is with us right now. That I'm sitting in a room full of people who love me, that I'm, I'm actually in a moment, this very, this very minute that if I want to, in a couple minutes I can go down and somebody will hold my hand, they'll put their hand around me and they will minister to me with the Holy Spirit that I can feel that pain and hold space for grace. So I just wanna ask you, if, if there's a situation in your life that you say, yes, there's anxiety, there's frustration, there's sadness, there's loneliness, can you just raise your hand? I wanna pray for you. God, I thank you for every hand. I thank you for every broken wall that you are rebuilding right now. I thank you that you have given us the freedom and the power to have joy this minute. I pray in Jesus' name that the fear and the lies that tell them that they are not able to access the breakthrough today, we loose those lies in Jesus' name. We pray that you would teach their hearts to receive and experience the emotional reality of your hope right now in Jesus' name. We thank you. 
God, teach us to root ourselves in your grace. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Wow, what an amazing word. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Hey, listen, for more information about our church, go to www.awakenchurch.com or subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't already and download our app. It is amazing. It is chock full of incredible messages, information about upcoming events, and you can even support our ministry if you feel so inclined. We loved having you with us today. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless you. Live a life that is transformative. Bye for now.